I was born in a household in Southern California. My mother was Christian and my father was Jewish. We attended a Hasidic synagogue in South Orange County. And we lived in a religiously mixed household and attended worship at a place that was not particularly open to that. That's Dr. Adam Duker, who a few years ago taught comparative religion at the American University in Cairo. And on this episode of the Humble Skeptic Podcast, I'd like you to hear his story. It's a story of tragedy and curiosity, of power and persuasion. I was always interested in what other people believed and why they believed it. I always had a historical curiosity about why religions change, why different denominations are what they are. And uh, growing up, we were discouraged from really asking those sorts of questions. My, my parents were intelligent people, but religion wasn't really something that we were supposed to experience and learn on our own or ask too many questions about. And, you know, when, when I was growing up, my family experienced a tragedy. My uh, first cousin, Sarah Duker, she uh, was studying abroad in, in Israel. She was an advanced graduate student. And one day her and her fiance were just taking a bus home and they were murdered. They were blown up by a Hamas suicide bomber. I remember at the time being so incredibly sad. Sarah was this amazing light that everyone in the family loved. And there was a period of mourning and sadness, but then there was also questions. And I've always wanted to know this individual. He was trained by Hamas, but... What exposure did he ever have to Christianity or to Judaism or to any other religion beyond his own? What sort of exposure do people who go on to be terrorists or go on to do radical things ever have about learning empathy, learning about other people, what they believe and why they believe it, not just what I believe and why I believe it? Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith. I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic. It brings me peace. I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kind of just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know. You just got to follow it. You just got to follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home, but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. I'm really just trying to figure out what I believe right now. Hey there, and welcome to another edition of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. On this episode, I'll be airing a conversation I recorded with Adam Duker. As Adam indicated at the beginning of this episode, the murder of his cousin Sarah inspired him to begin exploring questions related to religion and worldview 
to better understand what motivates some people to become religious extremists and terrorists. I've become very concerned um, that people have lost the ability in our society, or that at least the ability has been diminished to understand other people as moral beings and on their own terms. The person who murdered my cousin and, and other people on that bus, I think if he were ever sit down and have a cup of coffee with Sarah and understand what made her tick and what motivated her as a scientist, I think he would never have done that. Because you think he would see that she's more than just a set of doctrines that he opposes? Yeah, she was a human being who was living in a society, and he had a problem with the political ideology of that society. And he didn't see her as a human being. He saw her as just a collection of parts belonging to an ideology that she may not have even belonged to so much. And I get really concerned when we dehumanize someone in the ways that not only terrorists do, but what I see young people on Twitter and Facebook doing, um, that we've lost the ability to have conversations with each other. We've lost trust in rhetoric that I can convince you of something if we sit down and have a civil dialogue, and maybe you could convince me. Instead, I only want to talk to people who already agree with me. Or were the purposes just to bash the other side? Bash the other yeah. side. One of the things I've noticed as a college professor, Shane, is students don't tend to read novels very much anymore. They're, they're not fans of literature. They read Facebook and they read Twitter. We only can understand things in sound bites and we need instant gratification of short clips. But I think in, in some ways, this is an extreme example because in films, but even more so in novels, you have to develop empathy with the characters. You're not a character in the novel. So if you're reading Pride and Prejudice, you need to get in the uh, mind and the heart of Lizzie or Mr. Darcy or, or someone like that. Yeah, you're actually forced to see the world from the character's perspective. Right, instead of just your own. And I, I found that teaching religion, um, this is a way in, to try to remedy some of that shallow, narcissistic thinking in our culture. Where to help students to understand how other people see the world through other people's worldview and to see the world through their eyes. At some point, you have to look beyond the mirror, right? You have to look into your neighbor's window. Not, not literally, don't spy on them, but um, you want to understand what makes them tick. And I'm concerned that in our society, we've, we've lost the ability to do that um, to a large degree. One of the challenges for me, I, I was excited about teaching young people, not just in the United States, but elsewhere. I've lived in five countries in the last nine years, but I've wanted to understand how do you communicate cross-culturally, cross-confessionally. I'm an expert in the Protestant and Catholic Reformations, but how do you communicate something like that to a Muslim who's never heard of Christianity and or doesn't really know anything much about Christianity anyway in a place like Cairo, Egypt? Yeah, I'd like for you to go into that because you have some really interesting stories to tell about your time there. But you would say your overall goal as an instructor of comparative religion was just to be a faithful instructor of what Protestants believe, what Catholics believe, what Muslims believe. Jews, atheists, yeah, yeah. Uh, Hindus, Buddhists. I want, if there was a Buddhist in my classroom, when I teach Buddhism, I would want that Buddhist to say, hey, that's a faithful, legitimate representation of the Buddhist religion. It's not a caricature. It's not dismissive. And I wanted to teach Islam to Muslims and to non-Muslims. I wanted non-Muslims to understand what Muslims believe and why they believe it. I wanted Christians to understand what Jews believe and why they believe it. I wanted my students to understand the beliefs, practices, institutions, and rituals of other people on their terms, not their own. And would you say that that attempt to understand the beliefs of others, as you say, on their own terms, is just an aspect of what it means to love our neighbor? I think so. I don't know how you could be charitable to someone and to care about them or to show them hospitality if you don't know anything about them if they're just the, the bad guy or the other. 
So that, you know, that was a real motivating factor for me going to Egypt after the revolution in Egypt in 2011. I thought there really needed to be more cross-confessional understanding. Now, one of the classes you ended up teaching at the American University of Cairo was on the history of the Christian doctrine of justification. Before we get into what happened, how did you first get interested in that topic? Well, as a Reformation historian, uh, the history of the Christian doctrine of justification is a really important history. You know, it's one of the major doctrines of the Reformation that divided Christians amongst uh, from one another um, and caused the splintering and fragmentation of Europe. The doctrine of justification is an incredibly important doctrine. I don't think you can teach the Reformation or understand the Reformation in all of its complicated glory without understanding this doctrine, the doctrine of justification. So what was it like teaching the history of that doctrine to a predominantly Muslim student body? You know, usually I would have you know, about maybe 30% Christians in my class and 70% Muslim or 46 years, you know, something like that. But this class on the history of the Christian doctrine of justification, I had assumed that it would attract even more Christians and fewer Muslims. That assumption proved completely inaccurate. As it turns out, 100% of the students who enrolled in this class were from a Muslim background. I didn't have a single Christian in the class. They were really interested in learning about the Christian doctrine of justification. And that was surprising to me and very exciting to me. Um, I had taught at a Roman Catholic institution. And you know, one of the challenges of teaching the Reformation class at a Roman Catholic university is when you're beginning by talking about the late medieval church, you have to spend some time going back and explaining why the Catholicism they experience every day here in the 21st century in America, this post-Vatican II Catholicism, was different than late medieval Catholicism. So your personal present-day experience is not indicative of Catholics from 500 years ago. Yeah. So you had to almost do a little bit of deprogramming for a couple of weeks, whereas in Cairo, they really had no knowledge of Christianity whatsoever. Completely clean slate. Now, this had its own challenges, right. and then I have to start off a class on the Doctrine of the Justification by explaining who Jesus is. How do you explain the Trinity to the Muslims? How did your students react when they learned about the Doctrine of Justification? You know, they were so interested in this. There, there were a lot of students who were a little upset and quizzical about why wouldn't everyone just go out and rape and murder and yeah, kill and right. steal? What motivates them to do good work? And the concept of gratitude as a motivating factor wasn't something they'd ever considered. You know, it's interesting is whenever you look at the stats, it's always legalism that ends up producing more license. We were talking before the program about the fact that in Islamic countries where women are forced to wear the burqa, you also end up having the highest stats related to internet porn. Yeah, you know, that was one of the, the interesting contradictions of Egyptian society is that my students were incredibly squeamish talking about sex at all. So I, I also taught a, a world religions class in which we talked about sexual ethics and things of that nature, marital relations. And they would get very, they would shrink in their chairs. They were very uncomfortable about talking about this. But Egypt has the highest per capita pornography consumption rate in the world. And Saudi Arabia and Pakistan aren't so far behind. So th this is a society in which there are huge taboos, but what people do behind closed doors, I should also note that Egypt has a very terrible internet system. So to have the highest per capita pornography consumption rate means yeah. you really want to do it. Um, <laughs> so, you know, they, they, they didn't understand gratitude as a motivator. So we had a lot of conversations about this. One of the, the things I would do is I would take two students. I'll just make up some names right now. But let's say I had Noor and Muhammad. And I would say, okay, Muhammad, you're an amazing student. You're a A-plus student. You do all the homework. You do all the readings. 
you're doing extra readings, you show up on time for every class, you're respectful, you are earning an A+, plus. you set the curve on the midterm, nor you're a complete screw-up. You're never here, you don't read anything, you're disruptive, you're, you're eating in class, you're earning an F, you've earned it. Now, if I were to give Muhammad's A+, plus to you, and give your F- minus to Muhammad, would you ever be grateful to Muhammad for that? What would you do? Would you pick him up from the airport? Would you buy him lunch? Of course, you you would try to be nice to him. You would try to do to please him because he has given you by grace uh, something that you didn't earn or deserve. Mm. So I would try to do these sorts of exercises with them. And one of the big questions was how can God be both just and merciful at the same time to the same person? He could be just to you, Shane, in punishing you and sending you to hell. He could be merciful to me by allowing me to enter heaven, but he can't be just and merciful to me because my sins deserve punishment. Um, so this is a problem in Judaism and Islam and in other religions as well that Christianity has a unique answer to. Now, to be fair, I, I, I talked about problems in Christianity that other religions have answers to, but this is a problem in Islam. It's a theological issue that we discussed and we, we looked at how different Muslims attempt to solve this problem, Islamic theologians. On this issue of justice and mercy? On justice and mercy. Yeah. How, can you, how can God, if you define justice as giving people what they deserve— and if you define mercy as not giving them what they deserve. And is that a category in Islam? Yes, absolutely. In fact, it's a bigger category than justice. You know, Allah is always just, but it's always Allah the merciful, the Almighty. Who qualifies? Who qualifies for mercy? It's those who have done more good deeds than bad. Interesting. So, you know, the, the question is what happens to those bad deeds? And I allowed students to debate me. Sometimes they would take the Christian view. Sometimes I take the Muslim view. Then we'd do vice versa. We we switch. We we would just try to get into these issues to try to get to the meat of the matter. And always respectful. In my doctor of justification class, I had um we we ended the semester with debates. And there's citing Bible verses. No oh, justification is by grace alone through faith alone, and it's not of our own works, lest no man could boast. And they really understood what would motivate an Arminian or or a Reformed Christian to do good works to. What sort of hermeneutics they use in key biblical passages. We also did debates on justification being the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. So what? I mean, I just like to look at my iPhone and my boyfriend doesn't like to go to church, so I'm not going to go to church anymore. You know, these sorts of shruggish sort of attitudes in which individuals don't care at all one way or the other um, about this doctrine that for so many centuries has divided and brought together the church uh, simultaneously. I allowed the students to experiment with religious free speech, and I, I think they respected that. It was a safe place for them. It was a respite from the rest of Egyptian society. You know, one, one of the interesting things was in this justification class, I found that the, the vast majority of my Muslim students who were in this class, they cared more about this doctrine than the vast majority of Christians I see in the United States. Hmm. They really thought that this was what made Christianity unique from other religions. And we would talk about this. I'd had them over to my house I threw them an iftar dinner on Ramadan. Um, they, they understood that I was respectful to them and that I cared about them and I wasn't there to hurt them or to rob them of their faith in any way. I was there to help them to understand Christianity rightly in all of its complexities and all of its different denominations and levels so that they can understand people on their terms rather than on their own. But you say that they were able to see the significance of justification in particular. Yeah. I mean, especially in my justification class, I don't think those students would understand why someone would want to be a Christian if they didn't believe in this doctrine. They understood wow. that this was a pretty important doctrine and there were different Christian views of it. But to think that 
none of the views really matter, that they were just uninteresting or boring. They couldn't understand that. Um, this doctrine changes everything. Yeah, or for at least most of Christian history. We started in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and then we went through Origin and the early church fathers, and we got into the Reformation. We spent a good deal of time you know, looking at Luther and Calvin, and we spent a lot of time on the Council of Trent. And then we ended with the world today in which people just don't really care one way or another. Hmm. This is really, I think, the biggest historical turn in the history of the doctrine of justification, where it being such a contentious, you know, from here I stand, I could do no other, to so yeah. what? Who cares? It's that <laughs> it's that, you know, as, as long as, you know, as long as you're a good person, you know, it doesn't matter, right? We all believe in God. We we all care about, you know, being a good person and neither, none of us are Hitler, so we're all gonna be, we're all probably gonna go to heaven anyway. So so who cares? Why does it matter? So to me, I think that's actually the biggest historical turn. I agree. Even more so than the new perspective or Norman Shepard and his critics on the confessional reform side of the, in the 21st century. I think it's more of people just not caring. I know that on my maternal side, when my grandparents got married, um, one was a Roman Catholic, the other was a Presbyterian. And that was a scandal. I mean, it, it separated. It, it, it was not an easy thing to do. Family members wouldn't come to the wedding. Yeah. I mean, it, it, was, it was a major thing. And today, that's not even a thing. No, nobody cares. It's, it's not a problem. What's fascinating to me, though, is that your Muslim students picked up on the fact that the doctrine of justification was a really distinctive thing, whereas in many Christian circles throughout this country, that doctrine is hardly even on the radar. Well, you know, I, I agree with that. That's been my experience in interacting with American Christianity. I think you're absolutely right, Shane, in that there's an assumption on the part of pastors and church leaders that people don't want to learn about theology, that it's too complicated. If you can't teach a college-educated soccer mom the doctrine of justification, then why are you in the ministry is one of my questions. And the the interesting thing here is they're so afraid, um, evangelical pastors today are so afraid that you have to dumb things down and not get into the heart and meat of theology because they have such little faith in their parishioners. But I found that dealing with Muslim students in Cairo, Egypt, who had never explored the doctrine of justification before, that after a semester, they knew what propitiation was. They knew what substitutionary atonement was or alien righteousness or the difference between imputation or impartation or infusion. They were educated about this. They could come into any kind of happy, clappy, large uh, evangelical church in America and know more than most of the pastors of that church. I think that the pastorate of America needs to really think about is how little faith do you have in your in your people? You, know, you need to be able to teach them the, the doctrines of what makes your religion unique. Otherwise, why are they coming to you? Like, right. you got to give them something unique. And Christianity has a unique message when it comes to the doctrine of justification. And I've found that it's perfectly possible to train people who are not Christian, who have no interest in Christianity on a personal level or, or maybe only marginal interest. And I think it would be all the more easy to teach people who have a personal spiritual investment in Christianity. What were some of the challenges that your students faced as a result of going through some of your classes? Well, I think a lot of the students come into a class with a professor trained in the United States who's an American, and they're afraid. They're afraid that they're going to lose their faith or that the professor might have a bias, and that bias might change them forever in some ways. I have to say this fear isn't unique to my students in Cairo. I think there's a lot of people, probably young people who listen to your show, Shane, who go into a university, a secular university here and are afraid of taking a class on the history of Christianity or a religious philosophy class in which they're afraid that they're going to lose their faith or be challenged in some way. And in Cairo, it was similar in that the students um, thought there was a good chance that maybe I wasn't a Muslim. I never revealed my religious affiliation to them. And they were afraid that by taking my class that they would 
uh, lose their religion. And what I had to do was build trust and to assure them. And I, I said this on the first day. I said, look, I am from California. If some guy from Laguna Beach traveling all the way to Cairo, Egypt, lecturing to you, wearing a corduroy jacket, can steal your faith by talking at you for one hour and 15 minutes, twice a week, two and a half hours a week total, then you didn't have much faith to begin with. Good point, yeah. I don't think we should be scared in our search for truth. We should enter into it confidently. We should allow all ideas to be freely exchanged, that there should be no heretic hunters in universities, um, either on the secular side or the religious side. We have to allow for a free exchange of ideas. And at the end of the day, if there's a level playing field, the best ideas will win in the individual's hearts and minds and in the curriculum. And And even if they don't, the important thing is that we really strive to understand each other and that we stop presenting the views of others as caricatures. Absolutely. There there was no attempt in my classes to adjudicate right or wrong on religions. It was to explain what people believe and why they believe it so that you can understand other people on their own terms. Do you think that one of the problems we need to deal with is that Christian parents and youth workers don't end up spending a lot of time on apologetic questions in general or on this idea of exposing their kids to the beliefs of others? You know, they're just sort of raised assuming the Christian view of things. And so when they do finally leave the reservation, that's often when they're forced for the first time, really, to deal with views radically different from their own, and which sometimes can cause a crisis of faith. I think that's absolutely right. The saccharine version of Christianity, where we just believe things so that we can be nice people and we're Christian because we go to church on Sundays and we exchange presents on Christmas, that doesn't stand up. That's that's a faith built on sand. It doesn't stand up under scrutiny or to conversations in your dorm room or around the cafeteria table. It might, but it's unlikely to. I think what you have to do is train young people to think, to evaluate ideas, to allow for them to make mistakes, to ask questions. And then, you know, as parents, at some point, you have to let go and and let them stand on their own and make their own decisions. Sometimes those will be different than the ones you've made. So would you recommend that churches give more attention to this idea of exposing young people to other belief systems and showing how and why they differ from Christian beliefs? I think it's absolutely essential for the moral development of young people. And I, I would love to see churches spend more time um, explaining to young people what they what other people believe and why they believe it, and to maybe invite a Muslim or a Jew or a Hindu or a Buddhist to come and talk to your your young people so they can ask real questions. Mm. And what a thought to you know share some food. I mean that's um, that's an amazing part of studying other religions is you get to eat really amazing food from different parts of the world. To share a cup of coffee and have a conversation, I think that's something that um, not just for for the youth in churches but for adults that I think is missing or or when these religions are taught, it's just for the purpose of explaining why that other religion is wrong. And clearly at a church or a synagogue or a mosque, yes, these are not, you know, impartial organizations. They they hold to their own religious beliefs. And that's a good thing. I, I think that's that's great. But you first have to explain the other religion and to, to help people understand that other religion on its terms. You bracket your own judgments. You don't get rid of them. But then once you understand them, then you can apply your judgments to them. So you're judging based on accurate information and not prejudging or becoming prejudiced based on on false information or, or information that doesn't hold up to the beliefs and histories of other religions. So now, Adam, you were recently involved in an international news story related to your work at the American University of Cairo. So can you tell our listeners about the controversy that you were involved in there? Sure. So I, I was pretty fortunate. Um, Right out of graduate school, I had several different opportunities to be a professor in different parts of the world. And one of the places I applied to that, that ended up offering me an academic position was the American University in Cairo. And, and the position was to hold actually the largest humanities endowed chair 
in the Arab or Islamic majority universe, the Abdul Hadi Tahir chair in comparative religions. And this was an endowed position, so it was supposed to never go away. So it turns out in 2002, there's been reports that Abdul Hadi Tahir was associated with the Al-Qaeda terrorist organization. His name was found on a list in an Al-Qaeda safe house, and that list has been um, interpreted as a list of possible donors to Al-Qaeda. Who knows if that was real? But I, what I do know is that by establishing this chair, he, he did get a lot of positive publicity and recognition for caring about world religions and helping Muslims understand other people. So if, if he was affiliated with that group, it sure did wash his hands clean quite a bit. So I, I applied for this position, and it was a highly competitive international search. And I was fortunate enough to emerge from that search and be offered this extremely prestigious position. And I was very young to receive it. I was conscious of that. And I was excited about the opportunity to go to Egypt, to go to an Islamic majority country, and to teach Muslim students. Um, these are very elite students, I should say, Shane. They're, the tuition at American University in Cairo was very high. It's it's on par with um, elite private universities in the United States, but Egypt's a much poorer country. So these were the children of, of Egypt's elite and the Arab world's elite who could afford this tuition. So I, I understood that I had an opportunity to make an impact with people who may in the future are likely to hold um, powerful positions of influence in the Islamic world. Well, Abdul Hadid Tahir died, and his son Tariq Tahir in many ways took over the family legacy and fortune. I ended up meeting with Tariq Tahir after my first semester at the American University in Cairo. I was flown out to his mansion in Malibu, California, and I met with him and his wife. And his wife uh, at the meeting, Jessica Tahir, told me actually when he got up to go to the bathroom that Tarek had a nightmare one night. He had a very bad dream and subsequently interpreted that dream to be a sign from Allah to provide extra scrutiny to me and my teaching to the Abdul Hadi Tahir chair. And based on that dream and his subsequent interpretation of that dream, uh, he decided to make my life very difficult at the American University in Cairo. He demanded that I discontinue teaching certain religions. He wanted me to teach classes exclusively on Islam. But the biggest issue is that Tarek wanted me to use my position and my authority to teach the superiority of Islam to other religions. And that doesn't sound like comparative religion anymore. No, it sounds like <laughs> apolo Islamic apologetics. Yeah. And then he also tried to censor the materials I assigned my students. He wanted me to use my authority in the classroom and my position in Egyptian society to encourage non-Muslims to convert to Islam. But this is the American University of Cairo. So help our listeners to understand what's going on. If this is an American university, why does someone like this have the power to force you to teach the superiority of Islam? Well, he shouldn't. Um, his father established a chair with specific desires that would be used to teach comparative religions. The American University in Cairo is an American university. It has a physical presence, a building in New York City. It's registered in Delaware. It's accredited by the Middle States Accreditation Agency in the United States of America. It applies for federal tax dollars, um, claiming to be an American institution. It's received tens of millions of dollars in USAID um, money over the years. But um, you know, it also likes to be selective on when it decides to be American and when it decides to be Egyptian. When it comes to receiving money from the United States, they're very clear that they want to receive American tax dollars mm -hmm. and that they are an American institution. 
when it comes to respecting academic freedom. Then they claim to be an Egyptian university and subjected to Egyptian laws that don't protect any of those things. Now, you say that the controversy took a whole new turn on one particular field trip. Can you tell our listeners about that? That's right. So in, in November of 2018, I was leading my students on what I call my sacred spaces of Cairo field trip. This is a, a really important part of their education. Every semester, I would take them on a tour of a synagogue, a church, and two mosques. Uh, for my students, this was an amazing opportunity. They had Almost none of them had ever seen synagogues before. Many of them had only rarely entered a church. And in November of 2018, I was doing the same field trip I had always done. But now it was in the context of the Tahir family being very upset with me continuing to use this title, the university being very upset with me refusing to relinquish my contract. Our first stop was the Ben Ezra Synagogue in Coptic Cairo. It's a fantastic building um, that's had both a Christian and Jewish usage. And I was reading from the Torah. I was explaining to them the architecture and the, um, the sacred space and how the building was designed and laid out. And this field trip was different when three hijabi, slender female individuals ran into the synagogue and started screaming at me at the top of their lungs. And they were followed shortly thereafter by 20 or so armed men with AK-47s who came in and started manhandling some of my students who put their arms around me. One of the, the three women um, began to scream at me in my face, spitting on me while she was screaming. And the other two began going to my, my Muslim students, especially the ones wearing the hijab, who looked particularly conservative Muslim. And these two women were asking them if I had tried to convert them to Judaism. You know, I, I don't identify religiously as a Jewish person. You know, um, I am from a half-Jewish background, but Jews don't try to convert Muslims to Judaism. It, it was an absurd charge. Meanwhile, these uh, the armed individuals were manhandling me, sort of pushing me around. And I spoke to the, the gentleman who was in charge of these 20 guys, and I, I asked him, I said, it looks like I'm about to get arrested. Is this right? And he sort of nodded yes. And I had pleaded with him. I asked him if I could get my students out of the area so that they wouldn't be there to watch what was ever going to happen and so that they wouldn't be in any danger. And he kind of thought about it for a while and told me I could. But I would say like five to seven of my kind of very weightlifty, strong, uh, rugby-playing male students refused to leave me. They wanted to stand by my side, help with some translation work. Anyway, they, the armed individuals, they took me around the side of the synagogue and they started waving their guns at my face. And um, the male gentleman who was the commander of the of the men with guns and the, the leader of the hijabi woman would come up to me and talk to me. And she would play bad cop. He would play good cop. She had claimed that she was just working for the Ministry of Antiquity. She happened to be walking by and saw that I was doing something that she thought was improper in the synagogue and just happened to be doing a routine check. And she just happened to be hanging out with 20 guys with AK-47s. Yeah, she just had those guys <laughs> in, in, in her back pocket outside. So it was clear that that was not a believable story. Anyway, they, they would come up to me playing good cop and bad cop. She would be screaming and yelling in Arabic very quickly. I can understand some Arabic. I'm not fluent. But the, the gentleman says, you know, he's trying to play good cop. And he says, Professor, professor, you've done a very bad thing. You've, you've, you've really broken many Egyptian laws here, but it's okay. We understand that you're, you're American. You don't know anything. Even though I made a big error and I didn't have permission to be there, that he would let me go. And I said, well, I did have permission to be there. I had permission from 
the Ministry of Antiquities, and from Magda Harun, the leader of the Egyptian Jewish community. And he said, will you please come with us, professor? You come back to this interrogation room. I'll make you a cup of coffee. We'll have a nice chat, and you could go. And I asked him, I said, you know, am, am I under arrest? And he said, no, no, we would never arrest you. Um, but no, we just want to have a talk. And I said, well, if you're asking me to go into an interrogation room with you in Egypt, apart from being arrested, my answer is no, you're free to arrest me. And I extended my, my hand so they could put handcuffs on me if they wanted to. And I said, you're free to arrest me. I will not resist arrest. But if you arrest me, I want my lawyer in the room. I want my embassy. I want the State Department alerted, and I want my university alerted. And they said, no, you don't have to do that. And I said, look, that's the only way you're going to get me in an interrogation room is to arrest me. So then they would huddle up. Um, and while they were huddling, they were taking phone calls. People were passing them telephones. Meanwhile, those students who were with me, they were texting um, some numbers I gave them to my lawyer, to an official I knew in the U.S. State Department. And then they would, they would huddle up for a few minutes, and they would come back to me and and basically offer me the exact same thing as before, repackage. They say, okay, we, we have a new idea. It's a completely new idea, Professor. We, we'd like you to come back to this interrogation room. We're going to have a talk, and we'll make you a cup of tea. So basically their offer went from coffee to tea. Yeah, but there, was no, there were no real big <laughs> changes in this. I said, am I under arrest? And they'd say, no. I said, well, then I'm going to leave. You either arrest me or let me go. And they, they went back and huddled up again. And, and this farce went back and forth. I want to say like five or six times. It felt like about 45 minutes or so. It may have been a little bit more, but um, it was basically the same thing. They would just come back and offer me the same thing and then come back again. But then the final time they come, and this time there wasn't a good cop and a bad cop. It was just a bad cop and a worse cop. They were both angry at me. And they said, Professor, that's it. We are very upset. We, we know exactly what you did. You've done something very bad. And they're screaming at me very quickly. They're They're angry at me. And he says, we have just spoken to Magda Harun, the leader of the Egyptian Jewish community. And she says that she doesn't know anyone named Adam Duker. She's never heard of the Abdul Hadi Tahir Charade, you see. You did not have permission to be at the synagogue and that we should arrest you. I took my phone and I handed it to my students. I said, call Magda Harun. They put it on speakerphone and hang handed the phone back to me. And Magda picked up after a couple of rings. Hello, Adam, how are you? And I said, Oh, Magda, I'm fine. How's your wife? How's your baby? I said, Magda, they're great. Did you make them a good breakfast this morning? Yes, I made them a good breakfast. But that's not why I'm calling. <laughs> there were eggs and bagels involved, Magda, but that's not the purpose of my call. And she explained to the armed people that um, that I did have permission to be there, that I was a friend of Egypt, that I was a friend of the Egyptian community. And while I'm doing this, this woman is furious that Magda is contradicting her and is trying to grab my phone and although she seemed to wield a great deal of power um, controlling you know, a large group of men with AK-47s, she was actually a quite slender, small, short woman. And I'm six foot three almost, and she's trying to jump up and grab my phone, which I lift over my head. And it's kind of funny. She's jumping up, trying to grab at it, and she's screaming so fast, spit is flying out of her mouth while she's speaking. And um, they, they didn't have anything. They had built their bluff on me not really knowing Magda Harun. Magda had um, contradicted this. And they went back and huddled. She didn't even come back. He came back the last time and said, you can go. So we went and we, um, I, uh, the, the students and I, we met up with the other students at the coffee shop to a standing ovation. A lot of the students had been tweeting about it or, you know, doing online communications. And What do you think would have happened had you agreed to go to the interrogation room? 
I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I was pretty intent on not finding out. So, um, <laughs> I, I mean, it's, there, there's been Americans who've been arrested in Egypt, um, uh, for, for all sorts of reasons. Egyptians do not have religious freedom under article 98 F of the Egyptian constitution. It is illegal to hold religious views that they consider um, outside of the three main religions that they accept, which is Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Is it illegal to convert to a different religion? It's legal for Christians and Jews to convert to Islam. Ah. It is illegal for Muslims to convert to anything else. So, you know, in my time teaching at AUC, I'd have a lot of students who would come to me during office hours, or at least some students, who would confide in me because they trusted me that they were no longer Muslim in any religious sense. Um, some of them had converted to Christianity or to they've just lost their faith and were atheists, but they at least outwardly had to conform because of the ramifications of Article 98F of the Egyptian constitution. Mm. You know, when I got home that evening, I'd sent an email to the university chief administrators, the president, the dean, people like this, to explain what had happened because, you know, this was an incident. And I was really expecting somebody to call me and just to say, thank you for protecting our students. Are you okay? Is there anything we can do for you? And no, they, they didn't show any care for their faculty whatsoever. Instead, the next day, I, I, I called my lawyer and my lawyer said, hey, you know, I recommend that you just get out of Cairo right now. So we packed up our bag and we took our son who was not even two months old and we got in a taxi and we started driving south to a little oasis town called Fayum. It's a beautiful Bedouin town near a lake. But on the way down, I started getting emails on my iPhone from students saying, why do we need to meet with the dean of students? Why do we need to meet with... Um, the American University's chief lawyer, their general counsel. So they were also interrogating your students? Yeah, they were called in, and it became very clear to me that the university was investigating me. I was subjected to even more investigations at the university. In the next semester, um, I had university professors saying that I was a missionary implanted there. None of this was true. And you know, there, there was just really no support for academic freedom. They took the side of a Saudi billionaire instead of the side of the American values and, and the values of liberal arts scholarship that the university claimed to um, hold to. And, and, and this was a tragedy because I really had some great experiences and great opportunities there. Um, they took something very significant away from me, but you know, they also took something away from the students. This endowed chair guaranteed that these students would always have the opportunity to take these classes. And you know, this is, I think, a real blow to Egypt and to the Muslim world. This was the only position at a non-sectarian university in the Muslim world that taught religious studies comparatively. I mean, you could take a class at Al-Azhar University, the um, Islamic uh, theological institution in Egypt, but you would only study three religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and you would never read anything ever written by a Jew or a Christian. You would only read Islamic apologetics against Judaism and against Christianity. Interesting. Whereas in my classes, you would actually read things that Jews wrote and what Christians wrote and what Muslims wrote. And you would get to interact with these ideas in comparison with one another. And um, it was a safe place to do this. And my students loved it. It was, it was an opportunity they rarely had in an Egyptian society. But I did have some pretty amazing opportunities to teach some classes to these students, to interact with them, to be a part of their life. And, and that's something that I'll treasure really forever. Looking back now at the way your story was covered by various news agencies around the world, do you think that it was covered accurately? Well, you know, it started off, uh, some of the, the first news organizations to cover it were really afraid of Tarek Tahir and his lawyers. And so they sort of started off telling it as sort of an employment dispute. Uh, he said, she said, this professor wants this, the university wants that. And it was just kind of a 
disagreement. Um, other organizations cover the religious dimensions of it, some more faithfully than others. The more left-leading news organizations were more concerned with seeing if they could use this to embarrass the Trump administration. It was more about using my situation to advance their own interests and their own goals. I did have yeah. some reporters who just made up quotes out of whole cloth. Some reporters who never even spoke to me, but then said in an exclusive interview with Professor Duker and these kinds of things, <laughs> um, they're just doing it for clicks and for their own organization's agenda. So I became very skeptical of the Western and really the international press through this experience. But I mean, at the end of the day, this I thought this was a story about academic freedom being violated, religious rights being violated, and an individual who moved to Egypt with the best intentions of helping the society really being undermined and betrayed by the university that employed him and by a Saudi extremist from Malibu, California. Folks, the tagline I chose for this podcast is that truth isn't afraid of questions. So whenever you find that you're not allowed to ask questions or that people from opposing points of view are marginalized, misrepresented, censored, or even canceled, this should be a clear sign that the quest for truth has been abandoned and that the community in which you find yourself has chosen the dark path of propaganda and totalitarian control. This can take place in churches, mosques, schools, online forums, and entire societies. And I'll be exploring this topic in a variety of ways on many future episodes. If you'd like suggestions for further reading on this issue, as always, be sure to check out the show notes, which you can find at HumbleSkeptic.com. That's HumbleSkeptic.com. And I look forward to being with you again next time as we explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Mm-hmm.